On the virtual Bible study tonight, we're taking listener questions. Yeah, and, and when you say we're taking them, we've been taking them. We've already them. taken them. Yeah, and we'd be willing to get, take some more if we hey, have time. But yeah. if we don't have time, we'll deal with them in the future. But we're dealing with six different topics that were sent in by listeners to our program. Uh, really interesting stuff and dealing with some areas that I don't think we've ever talked about on the Virtual Bible Study. It's one of my favorite kind of programs, and I think a yeah. lot of listeners like it as well. And we hope you'll stay tuned and join in the discussion. Lister questions, and we're going to get started right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 93 93- 3-1-381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And we welcome you into the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, November 8th, 2018. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great to be with you Good tonight. Good to be with you. And Kyle Barnes is behind the controls tonight. Kyle, welcome back to the program. It's good to be here. Kyle, last week you helped me get a lot of the sermons from our gospel meeting up on the the podcast feed. Uh, So we want our listeners to check that out. Find out about it at our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. Also find out uh, more information about us there. So check out our website and uh, send us an email. We want to hear from you. That's right. We're always looking for feedback from our listeners. You mentioned last week, Jacob, that... At some point in the near future, we hope to send out a survey to those who listen to our program regularly and get your feedback about things you'd like to see us do or do differently or do more of. And so we'll be trying to do that uh, in coming weeks. So keep an eye out for that in your email inbox. Yep. All right. Uh, tonight, uh, we've got lots of listeners signing in. I see uh, Rockmart, Georgia, Williston, Florida, Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, Livingston, Tennessee, uh, Cullioca, Tennessee, or far and wide on the program. Iowa, there's, uh, oh, I see Ames, Iowa in there. Yeah, Ames, Iowa. Uh, so listen, uh, if you're not signed in, sign in and share your comments with our listeners on the program tonight. Kevin's in the chat room says six topics. Sounds like a busy study. Well, Kevin, it will be, and so we better go ahead and get started. Yeah, let's dive in. The first one I think is pretty straightforward. We, I think we can answer it, but it's an interesting question. I never really had been challenged to, answer, to think about it or answer it before. Uh, the question is, are those who are in paradise going to heaven? Mm. Well, that's an interesting question. You remember Jesus said to the thief on the cross, this day shalt thou be with me in paradise. Yeah. Uh, and so Jesus went to paradise when he died. The thief on the cross went there, too, according to the blessing that Jesus bestowed upon him. And I think the very best picture of what happens when we die is seen in Luke chapter 16 when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Yeah. Uh, we see those two men dying. Uh, the, the The poor beggar Lazarus went to a place known as Abraham's bosom, as Jesus described it there. Right. We think it's also it is the place identified as paradise. Now, all departed spirits go to Hades. Hades is the realm of departed spirits. Hades is where spirits go to await the resurrection when when the bodies will be resurrected from the grave and their spirits will be rejoined with them. And, uh, in, in fact, in John chapter 5, 
Jesus said that all that are in the grave shall come forth. John chapter 5, verse 28, Marvel not at us, for the hour is coming, uh, in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Yep. So all go to Hades, but there's they, two parts of Hades. And they don't stay in Hades forever, as you no. mentioned. They're going to come forth. In the resurrection. Re- Revelation 20, verse 14 tells us that death and Hades are going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Hades will end. It's going to be destroyed. At the resurrection. So you're not staying there. Yeah. So you go there, but they, you don't stay there. That's right. But uh, the, the very, as we said, the very good picture of, ha- of the Hadean world is uh, in Luke 16, where we see Lazarus in Abraham's bosom comforted there. We, we believe the equivalent of paradise that's described in uh, elsewhere. And we see... The rich man in torment. But interestingly, it seems like even though they have not gone to their eternal destiny, heaven and hell yet, it seems the fate is sealed. Because remember, Lazarus said, send, I mean, excuse me, the rich man said, send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in cool water and place cool water on my tongue. Abraham said, can't be done. He said, we can't cross over to you, and you can't cross back over here to us. There's this problem there, of a great, great gulf between us. great gulf between. 1626 uh, in Luke there. And, and so, again, uh, you, to go to paradise or Abraham's bosom, you would have to have been a good person, a, a one who uh, believed and obeyed the Lord. And if, if that's the case, then you would be anticipating the resurrection of the righteous that Jesus spoke about there in John chapter 5. They that have done good will come forth to the resurrection of life. They that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. So if you're in paradise, then you would be among those who are awaiting the resur- the, 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 the those who have done good and will be in the resurrection of life. So I would say the answer is yes, based upon putting those puzzle pieces together. Uh, Kent in Georgia just simply says yes. Uh, uh, those uh, at death went to paradise. Uh, th- those who at death went to paradise died in fellowship with God. I think that's the key right there. To be in paradise, they would have had to have been righteous individuals, and therefore they would be awaiting that favorable resurrection. Now, Stephen in Georgia sends in an answer a little more thorough. He says the word the word paradise occurs three times in the New Testament: Luke twenty three forty three, Second Corinthians twelve verse four. Revelation 2, verse 7. The promise to the thief referred to the fact that both both of their souls, both Jesus and his, would be in a place Jesus referred to as paradise. We learn that at death, one's soul goes to a place called Hades, where there are two divided compartments. This is laid out for us in Luke 16, beginning verse 19, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Con- confirming that Hades is where Christ's soul went, look to Acts 2.27 and verse 31. That confirms this for us. One of the compartments is called both the bosom of Abraham and paradise. The other side is referred to as Gehenna or a place of torment ten times. Now, he, he says, and this is, this is really an important point to make, ten times in the King James, the word for Hades was, was consistently mistranslated as hell. And that's one of the that's one of the uh, in my opinion one of the worst failures of the King James version is that it mistranslates Hades and calls it hell, uh, which is not correct. And Stephen makes that observation here. Uh, Revelation two seven states that those in the place of paradise will get to eat of the tree of life. This alone would seem to suggest that those who are in paradise will indeed be in heaven. I agree with all that. 
Now, Stephen goes on uh, to make a rather long paragraph expressing premillennial belief about the end of time and the final resurrection. And since that's not on topic, and since I don't want us to have to, I mean, I'm, I, well, with all due respect to Stephen, if I read his answer, I would have to respond to it, and we'd get completely sidetracked on the subject of premillennialism, which we have discussed before and we will discuss again. But Stephen, and I think Stephen's in the chat room. Stephen, understand, I'm not going to read the rest of that question with, just be, out of respect because I don't want to read it and then have to, because I couldn't read it without responding to it because I don't agree with everything you said there. Okay. Uh, so we're just going to leave that part un, unread. All right. Thank you for your... The answers tonight from Kent and Stephen on that question. And, you know, in about five minutes, we've we've pretty much said everything we know about Hades. There's a lot of unknown there. Yeah, isn't it? And, and I know that it, to me it's sort of intriguing to think about as you approach death and, and know that you're going to cross over uh what will it be like and what you know what will be the experience it's, it's pretty amazing to consider and and but it's still in that and i i'm sure that's why there's just sort of a natural fear of death for all people even those who look forward to the resurrection of life there's this because it's unknown and it's never been experienced and but um, uh, for those who have served the Lord faithfully, it's going to be a wonderful thing i'm convinced all right eight seven seven three eight one four five six seven on the phone tonight. And let's go on to question number two. All right. Question number two is, what's meant by taking God's name in vain? Where in the New Testament does it say not to take the Lord's name in vain? Two questions in one there. Yeah. Uh, Well, of course, when we're talking about that, we almost always go to the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20... Uh, verse 7, among the Ten Commandments was this one, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. And so that was one of the Ten Commandments. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, I understand that the Hebrew there literally it suggests the idea of don't empty his name. Uh, and, and so... The, it, it would suggest the idea of speaking in to, about God in a way that empties him of his honor and reverence and respect that he is due. And so maybe that helps. But now, obviously, since that's one of the Ten Commandments, and we, we understand that the Ten Commandments are not enforced for us today, uh, I think the second part of the question uh, is an important one. Where in the New Testament will we confirm that that's still an an issue for us? You know what? You can search the, the New Testament over and over, and you will not find the instruction to not take the Lord's name in vain. But I think there are some principles that tell us that we ought to have the same reverence for God's name as they were instructed to in the Old Testament. Um, for instance, uh, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, we're told that we're to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name and so uh when we pray to god uh we're to approach him with that kind of reverence and um i think it's therefore is a logical conclusion that we ought to have that kind of reverence for god at all times i think you're right uh in colossians 3 verse 8 Colossians 3 begins, verse 1, If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. And then it goes on to describe that walk, that we should walk, putting Christ first. And he says, 
verse 8 in that context, he says, now, but now he also put off all these anger, wrath, mouth, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Blasphemy is closely associated with this concept of emptying God of the honor and respect and reverence that he is due. And so I would argue that in the New Testament here, in a verse like Colossians 3, verse 8, that, that tells us to avoid blasphemy, blasphemy would be the equivalent of taking, one of the ways we would blaspheme is to take the Lord's name disrespectfully. I think that's really the idea of taking his name in vain, taking his name, using his name in in disrespectful ways, not honoring him. He's very special uh, and, and should be held in such in our in our opinion, in our conduct, in our speech. Referencing him uh, should always be full of deep reverence and and to and, and to use his name casually and disrespectfully is to take it in vain. It's blasphemy. Now that happened, in my opinion, that happens just all the time because one of one of the favorite expressions of people who are not religious whatsoever is to take the Lord's name in vain. Whenever they're surprised, whenever they're shocked, whenever they're afraid, they use the name of God in vain. Uh, there are a lot of euphemisms uh, that people use uh, in, in similar circumstances which are disrespectful to God, uh, using euphemisms instead of the actual name of God is still disrespectful. In text messaging now, just using initials, people use initials to accomplish the same thing, and it's still disrespecting the name of God. All right. Uh, Kevin is in the chat room tonight, and he says uh, that a close concept in the New Testament is Ephesians 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. And he references Ephesians 5, verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And so there is a great emphasis in the scriptures uh, placed upon what we say and how we say it. And certainly when it comes to using the Lord's name, that would be included in that uh, prerogative. Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 36, I say to you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. You've got to yeah. be careful what you say. Absolutely. And I'm afraid that uh, the devil lulls us into a sense of uh, complacency when it comes to the use of our tongue. And we have to be constantly on guard uh, against uh, the sins of the tongue, as we've spoken on many times in the program in the past. We are up against a break. Let's get a break. When we get back, what's up next? Well, the next question starts. We won't go into all of it here, but the next question starts with a simple question. Are you guys serious? We'll answer that when we come back. Well, you might want to sign in the chat room. Are we serious? Kenton, Georgia, before we go, says, to use the name of God in an empty, useless, irreverent way would be to take the God's name in vain. Such would be a profane usage and of such of such, and is condemned. Second Timothy 2, verse 16, uh, such would also come under the purview of foolish talking as condemned in Ephesians 5, verse 4. As Kevin mentioned, such would be in opposition to the recognition of God's name being hallowed in the model prayers recorded in Matthew 6. That's verse right, Ken. And real quickly, Donna in Florida says... What's the difference between blaspheming the spirit and using the Lord's name in vain? To me, they're one and the same. Uh, well, I, but of course, this, the, 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 the name of God, the Father, is different from the name of the Holy Spirit. They're different, individ, they're different distinct beings. But you can blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You can blaspheme God. And both of those uh, are to, to speak disrespectfully, not honoring deity. 
So they're similar. They're different in the sense that they're addressed concerning different beings. She says, would taking the name of the Lord in vain be considered the unforgivable sin? No, I don't think so. Uh, Jesus identified blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as the, the sin that can't be forgiven. Uh, we've talked about this before, but that, even that's due to the fact that people who disrespect the Spirit will therefore disregard his work in inspiring God's message to mankind. And they put themselves in a position where they can't be forgiven because they've rejected the message of salvation revealed through the Spirit. And Kevin in the chat room is remembering what they taught him when he was a young child in Sunday school. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. And certainly we have to heed that we admonition. We used to sing that, didn't timeless, we, Kevin? Yeah, it? we used to sing that in a song. Yeah, all right. Thanks for those comments tonight, and keep them coming. We're going to get a break, and when we get back, we're going to answer the question, are we serious? Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. After these important messages, we'll be back to take your comments. Email them during this break. I'm Dan Quillen, a member of the College of Church of Christ, with some thoughts about making plans. Have you made any different plans for your spiritual life and for your service for God? We spend time prioritizing personal lives and setting goals in our careers, but do we think in those terms about the most important thing, our soul? Ask yourself these questions. What am I planning to do for God today? In the coming week, what good thoughts will I accomplish for Him? At this time next year, where do I want to be in my spiritual life? In five years from now, how will I have changed, improved, and grown in my work for God? Ten years from today, how will my family be? How will I have helped them grow spiritually? Twenty years down the road, how will I be doing? As I approach death, what will have been the most important things in my life? Where will I be in eternity? Here's some quotes worth pondering. The danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we will miss it, but that our aim is too low and we will reach it. It's choice, not chance, that determines your destiny. Man, wish I'd said that. Use your internet connection for something good. Listen to the virtual Bible study every week. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program tonight. Dwight in Ames, Iowa says, why would we want to use the Lord's name irreverently? That's a good question. We need to do a little hard check on that if we're tempted to, to, to use the. I mean, and boy, it's so prolific in our society. But if we're tempted to do that. What's the motivation? I think it's just, it's just, I think a lot of people do it just thoughtlessly. They're not even considering what they're doing. It's become so ingrained and they're so callous to the meaning of it all that they say it without even thinking of the implications, which is a big mistake, of course. Yeah. Thanks for those comments tonight. Kevin says, I know you guys are serious. I'll vouch for that since I've been listening to this program for years and recognize your sincerity and noble mindedness. With respect to the scriptures, well, thanks Thank for you. that commendation, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. And uh, that goes to our question. This next question must be from, you know, if you were in a court of law, uh, an attorney would refer to a, a, a witness as a hostile witness. I would say this is potentially a hostile questioner, uh, but we, we want to deal honestly with the question that he asked. Are you guys serious? My answer to that is yes. We try always to be serious. We're not. We're, we 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 feel that there's actually. We feel that an accountability to to be serious when we're yeah, talking yeah. about the Word of God. In James chapter 3, verse 1, James says, My brethren, be not many teachers or masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation or judgment. So James says, if you're going to be a teacher, understand that you're going to be accountable for what you taught and that we take that accountability seriously. So, yes, we're trying to be serious and really answer the questions were asked uh, as we believe them to be explained in the Word of God. So here's here's as this question goes on. 
Our New Testament was altered six times by 150 A.D. and the Old Testament twice. The Dead Sea Scrolls Bible proves the alterations of both. See the truth and stop imagining the liars told the truth. Now, I'm not sure who the liars were, but uh, first of all, the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were initially discovered in 1946 and 47 in some caves near Qumran, near the coast of the Dead Sea. Uh, Initially, just shepherds found these scrolls sealed in clay jars and didn't even know what they had. Uh, The story is told that they used them as some of the scrolls as kindling to start fires. That may be an exaggeration based upon what I was reading recently. That may not actually happen. Oh, that's good, yeah. Uh, But what they were were handwritten copies of Old Testament texts. There was a a society of people who lived in the area. They were sort of hermits. Sometimes we refer to the Essenes. They were some people who sort of wanted to stay out of society and culture. They isolated themselves for the purpose, uh, their, their imagined purpose was uh, to serve God more faithfully. But they had a devotion to the uh, written scriptures, and they copied them, and they sealed them in these jars. And, and, and actually, the way they sealed them preserved them amazingly. The, the dating on the, on the documents that were contained, that were discovered in these caves near Qumran, the Dead Sea area of, of the Middle East, they date to 200 or 250 A.D. So the, the, this, this society of people lived in the area and did this preservation work two centuries before Jesus. Okay? That's what the Dead Sea Scrolls well, they were. They were an incredible, probably surpassed any other archaeological find in biblical reference, probably surpassed by scales of tens or hundreds. I mean, it's off the chart. The importance of this archaeological discovery is just incredible, just off the chart. All right, now, the Dead Sea Scrolls Bible is a actually a, 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 about three guys who were theologians took the Dead Sea Scrolls, because the Dead Sea Scrolls were rolled out by the authorities in Israel uh, really slowly, and it wasn't until maybe mid-90s when they let all of the Dead Sea Scrolls be known, be seen, be read. And so these three individuals, I don't remember their names, and I didn't write them down, they, they took the Dead Sea Scrolls and they tried to make a translation from the Dead Sea Scrolls because uh, those are the most ancient, those are the most ancient manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament texts. What was really amazing, what what really one of the great advantages of the Dead Sea Scrolls is it proved because because we were able to jump back several centuries, the most recent from the most recent manuscripts of the Old Testament we had, we were able to jump back several centuries, and what was found was those manuscripts had not been altered over centuries of time. They as they were copied and transcribed, it was done. Every generation of copies so, was made. So they accurately. have to come back and revise the Bible that we had at the time. Then you say, "Oh, we found that that Acts two thirty eight really isn't." They Acts didn't have to. They didn't have to change no, it because they found it. it oh, because, well, what we've got's right. Yeah, but Acts two thirty eight wasn't in the Dead Sea Scrolls because the well, New, yeah, right, the, yeah. the, 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 and that's the, the fallacy the of this guy's yeah, question. He says the New Testament was altered six times by 150 A.D. and the Old Testament twice. The Dead Sea Scrolls Bible proves the altered. 
the Dead Sea Scrolls, nor the translation that was made from them, could possibly have any inference to the New Testament text and its authority. Or, no, he said, or he or she said, the Dead Sea Scrolls proves the alterations of both. It couldn't approve the alterations of the New Testament. Exactly. It, the New it, Testament it, was in it, existence it, when it was written. Exactly. Now, again, this Dead Sea Scrolls Bible was was published in 2002. Uh, and it, 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 it purported to be a translation directly from the Dead Sea Scrolls on, on the sections of, of the Old Testament scriptures that were contained in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, I actually looked up today just to make sure I looked up the table of contents of this Dead Sea Scrolls Bible translation. And the table of contents contains no reference to any New Testament book. And so the, so this question, our questioner is way off base uh, the fact of the matter is, both the Old Testament and New Testament documents, there's no book of antiquity that comes even close to the, to the Old and New Testament by way of confirmation that they have been conveyed to us accurately. Oh, amazing the difference in the number of, of manuscripts that we have to verify that what yeah. we have is accurate. You know, and we don't, the people don't put uh, the, other works of antiquity under the same scrutiny that they do the Bible when they're just a fraction of the manuscripts that we have uh, compared to the Bible. And, and they don't question, they, they, they never question the legitimacy of those other writings, but they, they never say, want... stop stop uh, imagining the liars told the truth. Yeah. You guys, are you guys, are you serious? you got to be crazy to believe the Bible? No. Yeah. We've got so much evidence that we have an accurate version. Yeah, you might read what Kent said in regards to this, Jacob. Yeah, Kent says, and again, I like look at this, listen how he puts this. He says, as goes the proposition, must go the demonstration. Those who deny the accuracy and veracity um, must provide adequate evidence that the scriptures have been altered. We deny that such evidence exists. Uh, that brings about a rational conclusion that denies the accuracy or veracity of the New Testament. There are three elements in establishing the authority of New Testament documents. One, an examination of extant manuscript copies. Two, a comparison of New Testament manuscript copies with the and, and ancient history and ancient versions. The dating, number, number three, the dating of the original sources of these manuscripts. There is more accurate manuscript evidence for the New Testament than any other book in the ancient world. There are more manuscripts copied with greater accuracy and earlier dating than for any secular classic from antiquity. From the standpoint of a documentary historian, the New Testament was has vastly superior evidence to that of any other book from the ancient world. As a matter of fact, the New Testament could be reproduced today as we know it from the writings of ancient history. When one considers the dates for the writings of the New Testament books, there are found all of essential points of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Christ written by contemporaries of the eyewitnesses. Good, well said, Ken. So he's saying you can go back to where the Bible was referenced by ancient writings, and you can reconstruct, he says, the entire New Testament, at least yeah. a good portion of it. Yeah, if you just took the basically what he's saying is, if you just took all the quotes that were quoted by secular writers of the New Testament text... You could reconstruct the New Testament just from from their quotes of the New Testament. In the chat room, Stephen notes, I, I, I did have a slip of tongue. I said, if I said that, and I didn't even know I said it. He said, you guys said 200 to 250 A.D. for the, no, 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 no. 
It's 200 to 250 B.C. I said that wrong. Please excuse me. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written two or 250 years before the time of Christ. Uh, so thank you for correcting us. He on goes that. on and says in the second century, many verses were altered or left off again. Second, but he's talking about New Testament. They're not Old Testament. Yep. And I, I don't think that's true, by the way. But uh, uh, Kevin says we would probably make a case that the epistles individually are still being circulated in the mid second century, about 150 A.D. as stated by the questioner. Okay. Uh, okay. And um, so they, it would be hard for them to be altered when they were still in circulation there. And then uh, Sarah says, I have heard people try to say that the Bible was changed by King James and the group of people that translated it into English. Yeah, but that yeah, that can't be the case because we've got manuscripts that go way, way, way back before 1611 when the when the original King James version was published. Uh, King James couldn't change those manuscripts that date back. Some of the manuscripts of the New Testament text date back to the second century. In other words, we've got copies of the original. We don't, we don't have any of the originals. But we've got copies of the originals that date back to the second century. And so the King James translation, the King James version, 1611, came 1400 years later than some of the manuscripts that we still have access to. And so King James, although he might very well have liked to change some of it because it didn't go along with his theology, he couldn't very well do that because we got these manuscripts. You can't, you can't destroy the manuscripts. Well, that's true. Then. And then Kevin, Kevin clarifies his thought. He says, therefore, who physically had a complete Old Testament and New Testament prior to 150 A.D.? Right. So how could you change it? But again, you've got all these copies. So if I wanted to change the Bible today, how would I? I mean, I could change my copy. Yeah. I can't I'm change gonna yours. Come Look, I've actually got some scribbles here in my, in my text. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to blot out sections and, and make my scribbles permanent. Yeah. Well, but it, I can't because there's. So, I mean, I can do it for like you said. I can do it for mine, but it, I, then let me have your Bible so I can yeah, do your. Yeah. Kyle, let me have your. I'm never going to get done changing everybody's Bible. Yeah, it was it was duplicated so much that you, yeah. it's easy to go back and and verify that what you have is accurate. Exactly. All right. Um, well, another break, and we only got one question there. Yeah, but we're halfway through. We got three questions done. But yeah, so yes, we are serious. Yes, we believe the Bible and. And we have ample evidence to to show that it is, in fact, uh, accurate. When we get back, a dress code for worship. Well, now that could get heated. Have we ever talked about that in the Virgin Bible style? I don't think think we have. Really? Yeah. I think we probably have, but we're going to talk about it when we get back. What do you think? A dress code for the Bible, or for worship. Don't go anywhere. The Virgin Bible study continues right after this. Now you can listen to a podcast of a recent sermon every week. Find out more at collegeview.com. There's more of the virtual Bible study right after these important messages. This is Greg Wynn with this week's bullet point. A while back, we pulled into an old-fashioned gas station in a small town. An attendant was waiting at the pump to serve us. He took our order, and while the gas was being pumped, he busied himself cleaning our windshield. The kids were shocked and kept saying, He's actually cleaning our windows. What used to be the norm is now so rare that it seems shocking. The same sort of thing happens in religion. Over a period of time, gradual and minor changes can lead folks far away from where they used to be. It finally gets to the point that what used to be the norm now seems odd, even shocking. Things that never would have been tolerated years ago are allowed to creep in, and now they have become totally accepted. A good example of this gradual shift of norms can be seen in the matter of instrumental music. Few people realize that there was a great fight over this issue years ago, even among denominations where it's now common. 
For instance, William Posey in his history entitled The Baptist Church in the Lower Mississippi Valley writes, quote, For years the Baptists fought the introduction of instrumental music into the churches. Installation of the organ brought serious difficulties in many churches, unquote. But if you talk to a Baptist today, he would think it very odd to even suggest a religious service without instrumental music. You see, the norms have changed. It can happen to us, too, and it is. Simply observe how brethren talk and dress, where they go and what they do. Try to call them back to what used to be the norm, and they will treat you as if you are crazy. It is apparent that many are allowing gradual changes to take them farther and farther away from the absolutes that God has stated in his word. We need to ask for the old paths where is in the good way and walk therein, Jeremiah 6, verses 1 and 6, and stop drifting from God's norms. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hello, I'm Nick Law from Jennings, Florida. I love to listen to the virtual Bible study and hear God's Word taught every Thursday night. We're waiting to hear from you. Call in right now and join in on the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. And we're back on the program tonight. To remind you, this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. What's the website, Kyle? Uh, questions at collegeview.com. No, that's the email, email address. Email. Well, what, what's the website? Uh, well, the virtual Bible study. Well, it's collegeview.com or the virtual Bible study. Okay. Okay. You can go, you can go either way. Collegeview.com or the virtual but, but Bible study. But the email study. address, what's the email address? Questions at college. That's right. That's one you ought to hey, use. Hey, boy, I, I, I got a notification that our, one of our boxes from our uh, web host was nearly full, and uh, I'm glad they notified me because there were hundreds, if not thousands, of emails there. I never, I never look at that to delete it at the at the hosting site. Oh, you're deleting it when it gets to you, but yeah. not on the. On yeah. The, no, okay. Yeah. Uh, uh, on our YouTube page, in the in a chat window there on the YouTube page, Anthony is in there. We don't usually we don't usually get many comments on that page. We usually get them in our own chat window, but Anthony has, is in there and he says, "How would you respond to those who say that Mark sixteen fifteen and sixteen is omitted, or actually that Mark sixteen verses nine through twenty shouldn't even be in our New Testaments?" Uh, that is a very detailed study, Anthony. Uh, Whole books have been written about Mark 16, 9 through the end. Uh, the, the claim has been made by some that th- that was added later, that it doesn't deserve to be in our New Testaments. I actually preached a lesson about this a while back. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think all the evidence points to the fact that it should be included. Uh, Anthony, if you want to email me at questions at collegeu.com, I, I can send you the uh the uh, charts from the lesson that I preached on that it might be helpful, but uh, I j- j- just off off the top of my, uh, my head, I would just say I think that the the evidence is is pretty strong that those verses deserve to be in our Bibles. Stephen in the chat room disagrees, says it's part of the second century alteration. Maybe we need to put that sermon in the podcast feed. Yeah, maybe that's maybe what we, we could, could do that next yeah, week. Yeah. All right. Um, now on to our uh, well, before we go. Kevin says today's Bible has the most evidence backing up currently circulating translations being as being of solid lineage back to the original writers. A good topic for an entire evening study. Certainly would be, Kevin. Uh, thank you for that. Um, yeah, Kevin might have to be the uh, guest host for that one. Yeah, sounds like he's got the he's got the ammunition for that uh, discussion. And uh, now uh, a dress code. In, right. For our worship. All right. Uh, this actually came from our friend Randy in Colorado, who didn't really ask a question. He he forwarded an article and said this might be worth discussing. So the you art- made up the question from the article. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the article was in Christianity Today by an author named Carl Vaders, and uh, 
He basically takes the position that you, there's, there's no, there's no dress code of any kind, uh, and it shouldn't even be an issue. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting the way you approach it because I, I tend to agree that I think some of the arguments that are made, uh, break down. For instance, it's argued that we, God deserves our best. We ought to wear our best when we come to worship. Well, when you think about that, most of us have probably one, for us guys, maybe one suit of clothes that is our very best, that we that we save maybe for weddings and funerals. Yeah. Uh, ladies would have th- their very best dress, maybe the one that they would wear to a special occasion, a wedding, yeah. for instance. Uh, so if God deserves our best, then does that mean we should wear that every time? Because it is our very best. If it's, if if God deserves our best, then best is best, and we're gonna have to do what what yeah. is best. Yeah, I came to, uh, I came to services the other day. I sat down and looked at my pants. There was a big hole in them. <laughs> we went home and cut them up into rags. So I guess I wore my, some of my worst. Oh, uh, he said uh, this author says uh, there's no universal or biblical standard for what's best when it comes to clothing. Is best? So he asked the question: Is best based upon the cost of the clothes or the formality of them? He says if it's based on cost, he says you can. You he basically argues you can get on the internet and buy a pair of of old ratty blue jeans with holes in them and pay more than most people <laughs> well, pay for for a nice suit of clothes. Yeah. So if best is determined by cost, then that doesn't really work. Yeah. He says if best is based upon formality, then maybe we should all be wearing tuxedos to church, which yeah. which we don't do. Either. Which I would have a problem with. Uh, and so I would think unscriptural, but no. And so I agree with him that that this expression "God deserves our best" is probably a faulty way to say it. Yeah. Okay. Good then point. He, then he goes on to say, uh, some people make make the argument that uh, there's a dress code when if you met the president or if you met the king, met a king. You would dress up. There would be an there would be an appropriate dress to meet the president or meet a king. And then I, I was kind of amused by his answer. He says, "That's true, of course. There is a dress code for meeting a king, unless you are the king's child." Oh, good point. And he says, "We are the king's child." So the dress. So he. I, I think that argument falls flat, though, because in regards to kings, I mean. For instance, consider Esther. Consider the story of Esther in the Old Testament. She wouldn't even go into the king's presence, having not been invited. Uh, and so, you, when you went, even a family member had to approach the king with great respect and honor. Uh, Esther was worried she'd get her head cut off if she went in there, having not been summoned by the king. And so that 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 would argue that even for the king, uh, he deserves respect from his fa- even his family should respect him. So I I, yeah, I, but, I I think that argument's a little weak. Yeah, but I mean, but but I go before the the throne. Well, what do you wear to bed? I mean, you're not wearing your best to bed. I mean, maybe there's some ratty old yeah. clothes that you're sleeping in, but you you're praying when you're. You, no, but, yeah, but but I mean, uh, yeah, but that's not the point. Uh, his point is. We make the argument that if you were going to go meet the king or meet the president, you would dress up to do it. You're, when you go to worship, you're going to worship God, and you should dress up in order to do it, basically because it shows respect. I think that's, I, I, mean, I, I do think the question can be quibbled, but the point of the matter is that I think we should show respect 
when we come to worship. Okay. Uh, th- that's a little different than private, that, that, than our, than our private time at home when we're praying or doing something else. But when we come together to facilitate the worship that God has instructed us to do corporately, then I think that there is a, a respect that's due that would be like the respect that you'd have if you went to meet the president or if you went to meet a king. I, I don't, I don't see that that, I, I don't have a problem with that kind of reasoning. Okay. Cause I think we do, I think when we're in public, not what we do at home, not what we do in private, but when we, when we are in public, we do make a statement by what we wear. Uh, and, and we show our, attitude to what we're doing by how we dress is our dress code more for those that we're worshiping with than maybe for god is it more about what we're saying to other people than what we're saying to god by the way that we dress well there i think it does say something to other people but that's i mean we want to say the right thing to other people i mean i think that's uh, that's a, a big consideration is how do i present myself I present myself like, well, you know, I didn't really care about today or, you know, I'm I'm headed out to go fishing after this or I was fishing this morning and I just quit enough time to come here and get to check this off. And do I do I show that this is a priority? This is important to me. I think the way that I present myself and dress, certainly that ought to be taken into consideration. I think so. I think that's true. Finally, this author in this article that Randy sent me uh, uh, he, he says there are some guidelines, and he mentions the, guide, the first guidelines. Obviously, uh, you want to avoid immodesty. Second guideline is you want to avoid prideful display. And that was a big problem. And, and well, boy howdy, what's that about? Amber. That may be me. Uh, uh, okay, that's you. That's me. Uh, some kind okay. of, I forgot to turn my phone off. Some kind of amber alert. Okay, uh, we'll get to that later. Uh, uh, but you know. Some of the teaching about modesty was actually overdressing for for ostentatious display, and so I think that's true. I mean, uh, in James you, chapter two, there's a big problem with the guy exactly. coming in with the gold ring and the goodly apparel, and they were showing favoritism. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that would, we, we want to be careful about prideful display. So maybe it would be, it would be wrong to wear your wear your best at certain times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, say if, you're going if, to if I'm a, doing it to draw attention to myself, in other words, if I came in in a tuxedo, right, it would be my best. In fact, I don't even have a tuxedo, obviously, but if I had one and I wore it, I'd be I'd be making a, a ostentatious, prideful display, which would be wrong. And maybe you maybe you're going to a place where people are are in poverty and they've only got that vile clothing that uh, they mentioned in James chapter two. Yeah. Then maybe you want to. Be on that on that plane, so yeah. that there's not a big that you know. So and then finally, the author mentions a third guideline: rebellion. Don't be rebellious. Some people dress in a way different from everyone else to try and make a point. Uh, a teenager who wants to wear what his parents hate. Uh, uh, if we if we wear to church something that pushes to, that we're purposely trying to push back against what the church has culturally or traditionally observed, then we're being inappropriate, rebellious, rebellious and not Christ-like. I think that's, I think that's uh, an issue. Kyle, thoughts? Uh, which I was, uh, someone made a comment about the Jesus changed for, Jesus changed their clothes on Sabbath and feast days, but in the first century, you know, most of them have offset robes, and most of them 
probably didn't have a vast selection of rows. I mean, I had some purple garments. I doubt they had those, but I'm sure they would wash, make sure they're prepared and as well as could be for church or for worship. I think that kind of well, goes they, for us in many ways, though, too. So. They were to do that in the Old Testament, right? So. Uh, to, to wash and prepare. Yeah. Uh, for but and you know there, the, the the old example in uh, in the life of David when David's child by Bathsheba was sick uh, he you know, was fasting and grieving uh, and but when the child died you remember how that went uh, it says uh, David rose from the earth washed anointed himself changed his apparel and came to the house of the Lord and worshipped. So David, you know, got up. He'd been fasting because of the sick child. When the child died, he washed and prepared himself and went to worship God. Uh, Sarah in the chat room says that we do do have a dress code. It's called modesty. Kevin agrees with that. I thank you, Sarah, for that comment. Stephen says the dress code is established in James 2, verse 5, rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom, and those who love God. Um, uh, Kevin references 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. and likewise, that also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold, and gold or pearls or costly attire. Uh, Sarah adds, modesty goes for men as well. Um, and, um, and, and Sarah adds, she says, I think the real issue is not about best, but how people are wearing see-through tight and showing undergarments. Well, sure, that, that immodesty is a, is a problem, even at worship services, unfortunately. And she adds, we have been taught that the outward appearance is not as important as the heart. And so certainly um, we uh, need to be concerned about that. Um, you know, Jesus told, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find it real quick, and some of our listeners can help me, uh, when, when the, those came to the wedding feast and they weren't in their proper garments, they were, they were, they were not prepared for a special occasion. Jesus used that, now he used that to make a spiritual point, obviously, but <clears throat> the, the fact that he used that illustration would be one that everybody understood. You go into a wedding feast, you dress up appropriately for it. So culturally, I They're mean, cultural dating things. back to even the times of Christ, what you wear does make a statement about your attitude towards what you're doing. Yeah. Uh, Kevin says, I'm afraid rebellious dress is an issue today, dressing to the lowest common denominator because I can. Yeah. Okay. And, and, and you can. The fact of the matter is you can wear anything you want because there's no there's nobody who's going to stop you at the door. and There's nobody with a billy club that's going to beat you over the head if you wear something that they don't think is appropriate. And so... But the fact of the matter is, if you respect what you're doing and the people you're doing it with, I think that's important. It's not just about God, as you were saying, Jacob. It's not just about our attitude toward worshiping God. But, but you know, if, if, I, if, if I don't dress according to some expectation, I'm going to distract other people from their ability to worship in the right mind. Kyle, what do you think about it? Actually, what it comes down to is, what will enable my brethren to worship the Lord in the best way possible? And that's not okay. distracting. That's not form-fitting. Something that is comfortable, of course, but something that is appropriate. But whatever is going to enable them to worship the Lord in the best way possible, I think that's just what it comes down to, I think. And Kent in the in the, his email tonight says, There is not a necessarily a checklist of specific statements that gives us a dress code. However, there are statements, implications, and examples from which we draw biblical conclusions, which does serve as guidelines for New Testament authority as to determine what is acceptable and non-acceptable clothing for both the worship assemblies and all other activities as well. 
such does constitute a pattern to follow. And so Kent's saying, uh, yeah, you need to look at uh, biblical principles as you make your decisions. Kevin says, I still see men wearing suits to funeral out of respect. So uh, Kevin says there are. You know, there are ways you present yourself to show that you respect what you're doing and what you're, who you're doing it for. And then uh, Stephen references Matthew 22, verse 11, uh, about dress. Matthew 22, verse 11 says, um, and when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man with that, 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 that was garment. the text. Yeah, Thank you, okay. Stephen. That was the that was the example yeah. I was trying to okay. r- regard. Right. Uh, in the in on the YouTube chat window, Anthony says. Nowadays, we can go to the thrift store and buy really nice clothes that are modest. It is out of respect for the Lord. If we can dress nice for other events out of respect, uh, then uh, there should be far more for the Lord than for those events. Individuals usually use the clothing as an excuse not to come to worship. In other words, oh, I don't have nice enough clothes to come to church. Yeah, you do. Actually, you do. Whatever you have, you can come to worship. We're not saying if you don't have a... $500 $500 suit, you can't come to worship. We're no, nobody is saying that. But I have heard people try to use that as an excuse. Okay. Well, we need to call an audible here. We've got two more questions and 11 minutes to go. Um, I think we probably need to skip this last break. Okay, let's skip it then, and uh, we'll go quickly yep. to question five. If our listeners need a break, you can push the pause button and come back. I mean, sometimes you got to have a break, but uh, we're going to go on without it. You, you good, Kyle? Yep, you can, you good. can do it. All right, let's go. Okay, so uh, question five is, uh, for years, it has been explained that in the Bible, in the Bible study period, the whole church was not gathered so women can speak. During the worship period, it seems to pose no problem for women to be silent. Is that a weak argument? He says, does that seem like a weak argument? In other words, what we're so the answer, and I, I've given this answer. I think it's a good answer. I'll try to defend it here in a minute. But the argument is, during Bible study periods, the whole church is not gathered together, specifically not gathered together to observe the Lord's Supper. It's a different kind of coming together. In the worship, when we come together to observe the Lord's Supper, that's a different s- scenario. And actually, the Apostle Paul, when he gave the instruction about women being silent in the church, gave the instruction in that context. Now, I want to go real quickly uh, to sort of trace the, the context of this, the, the the statement, let your women keep silence in the churches, it's not permitted to them. Uh, let your women, this is 1 Corinthians 14, 34. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it's not permitted for them to speak, but they're commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. All right. Now, the context of that statement in 1 Corinthians 14 goes all the way back to chapter 11, when when... He starts to talk about things that the Corinthians were doing wrong when they came together in their assemblies. The first thing that he addressed that they were doing wrong is how they observed the Lord's Supper. In chapter 11, verse 20, he says, When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It should have been, but it wasn't. But notice, they came; they were coming together in one place to, and should have been coming together to observe the Lord's Supper. Then, in chapter uh, or at the end of that chapter, verse 33, he said, 1133, Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, talking about eating the Lord's Supper, tarry for one another. And then skip over to chapter 14, still in the same context of things they were doing when they came together that needed to be done differently. He says in verse 23, If therefore, this is 1423, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, 
And he goes on to talk about speaking in tongues before. And then verse uh, 26. Uh, how is it, brethren, when you come together? Every one of you have the psalm, hymn, and so forth, and so on. And so I think that all in, in this entire context, starting back there in the middle of chapter 11, all the way through 14, he's talking about their coming together in their in their meetings and worship assemblies to observe the Lord's Supper. And it is in the context of those assemblies that he says in verse 34, let your women keep silence in the churches. So I do think that the instruction for women to keep silence is particular to the worship assemblies when we when we come together to observe the Lord's Supper. Bible class arrangements are different from that because the whole church has not come together in one place and we have not come together to eat the Lord's Supper. Therefore, I don't think 1 Corinthians 14.34 is the verse I would use. I could give you an example of some people came together to study the Bible and the, and the woman had something to say in the course of it. In Acts chapter 18, when Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos aside, uh, Acts 18.26, Aquila and Priscilla, when they heard him, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of the Lord more perfectly. Well, there's a Bible study assembly. Three people, Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos. And it says that uh, that, that uh, Priscilla had some part in the discussion there. So I would, uh, I, I would argue that th- there is a difference between coming together in Bible study settings and coming together in a worship assembly to take the Lord's Supper. All right. So I don't think my answer is no. I don't think it's a weak argument. I think it's a legitimate argument. Nor does Kent. Kent says such is not a weak argument. There is generic authority for Christians to study the Bible using using a class arrangement. He references Second Timothy two verse fifteen. Such must be distinguished from the entire church coming together. Hebrews ten twenty five. In consideration of First Corinthians fourteen thirty four, total silence is enjoined upon the woman that she does not speak in such a way. To deliver a discourse, however, Ephesians 5.19 and Colossians 3.16 requires women to speak in the sense that they are to sing in the assembly. In 1 Timothy 2.11 and 12, the term silence refers to that of quietness. The woman is not to teach over the man nor exercise dominion over the man in any other way. In the, new, in the Bible class arrangement, asking a question or making a comment is not speaking when the church is assembled. Such is not necessarily the delivery of a disclo- discourse. Therefore, such speaking is not necessarily teaching or exercising dominion over the man. There is a definite concern that does need to be understood. While there is no sin in asking of a question or making of a comment, it would indeed be sinful for a woman to take control of the Bible class where the men are present and attempt to teach the class from where she is seated or exercised dominion in any other way. I agree, Ken. And I think I've seen evidence of that in times. Uh, I remember years and years ago, a, a woman got really mad in the course of the of a Bible class, uh, and and she spoke out. Do you mean to tell me? And then she, so she basically asked a question, but she was not being. She was trying to take control of the class from her seat, like like uh, Kent is describing there, and and that's condemned. Uh, not from the point of First Corinthians fourteen thirty four. Let your women keep silence in the churches. That's condemned in, in regards to women's attitude to, of submission toward men and, 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 and these other passages that Kent referenced. Okay. So I think that's the answer. All right. Number six. And All we're right. going to get done here. Number six. Number six. In Matthew twelve thirty one through 35 and Luke eleven twenty seven through 28, Jesus seems to suggest that his mother Mary does not hold a special place that should be venerated. Yep. Now, uh, real quickly, uh, remember what those two episodes were. In Matthew chapter 12, 
verse 31. I think it's actually 41 through 46. Yeah, 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 41, 41. Uh, well, it's 46 through 50. There it is, there it is. Uh, yeah. yeah, the questioner got the verses wrong. It's, it's Matthew 12, 46 beginning. While he yet talked to the people, behold, his mother and brethren stood without desiring to speak to him. Then one said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without desiring to speak with thee. But he answered and said unto them, Who is my mother and who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand toward his disciples and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of my Father which is in heaven, the same is my brother and sister and mother. All right, so there, there's one case where Jesus doesn't seem to suggest that his family, his physical family, should be held in special consideration. The other is Luke 11, uh, verse 27. It came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman of the company lifted up her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. So the questioner says, it's Jesus seems to suggest that his mother, Mary, does not hold a special place and should be venera- venerated. Not venerated. Ventilated. <laughs> Ventilated. <laughs> Venerated. Venerated. Uh, yet the Holy Spirit, through Elizabeth, said that she is blessed in Luke chapter 1. Remember when Mary came to Elizabeth, John the Baptist was in Elizabeth's womb. Uh uh, verse 41, Luke 1, it came to pass that when Elizabeth heard the salutation of Mary, the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. And she spake out with a loud voice and said, Blessed art thou among women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, uh, blessed is he that, uh, that believed, and so forth. So, the Holy Spirit said that Jesus, that, that Mary is blessed. Are they contradicting one another? Well, well, that's an easy question. No, they're not. Because the, the spirit in Jesus can't contradict. All right. So, I mean, even if you not even taking the topic under consideration. Yeah. You know the answer to that question. The answer, anytime there's an apparent or suggested contradiction between Jesus and the Holy Spirit, it would be impossible. They are deity. They are in perfect harmony and unity. Yep. Uh, actually, this question comes from a fellow I know to be a Catholic, and they do venerate Mary, and they do say prayers to Mary. They deny that they worship Mary, but that's a, that's a quibble about definition of worship. We've talked about that on the virtual Bible study in the past. Do we believe that Mary is blessed? Yes, but I'm gonna tell you, I'm blessed too. You're yeah. blessed. We're all blessed by the by the things that God has done for us, and so Mary was blessed in the fact that she was the mother of Jesus. But that the the, the very fact that she's identified as a blessed individual does not indicate that we should worship her or, or, or say our prayers to her. That, that's, that's, that's a leap beyond anything that the text would justify. Yes, all right. Um, and, uh, and I would say that it puts more focus on the one who's blessed than the one who has done the blessing. Yes. I mean, God has blessed Mary, and Mary had been blessed by God, and not that... Uh, she ought to be worshipped for it. And, and in those other texts that we read, Jesus indicates that the real blessing is for those who do the will of God. Yeah. Uh, important note, Kevin mentions uh, John nineteen twenty six and 27, where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he's honoring his, his mother as he... He, he they, never failed to honor her. That's right. right. Yeah. Exactly right. But the, the Catholic notion of the veneration of Mary is not justified from the Scriptures. 
Kent says there's a vast difference in the veneration and worship of Mary and in giving Mary the honor and respect that she deserves. While we are to respect the memory of Mary, we must never venerate or worship her. There is no contradiction in the two. They are two totally different actions. I think that's right. Thank you, Kent. All right. We're out of time. And we got through six questions, but we had to hurry. We did, but a good discussion and good questions. Appreciate our listeners for sending those in. Um, and uh, as we always say, we need more. That's right. So now, gonna, now we need we need you to come on through. We need for six us again. more questions so we yeah. can get another program like this. Yeah, uh, these are very good and very, uh, uh, very informative uh, for me, and I appreciate uh, the discussion. Uh, Kevin seems to agree as well, and uh, so we appreciate Kevin and for all who um, uh, have joined the program. Sarah has a question or makes a comment. She says, "I can't find the scripture, but Jesus said, call no man father, but your father in heaven.'" Yeah, what was that passage? Matthew, isn't that Matthew 23? Okay. Uh, wait, I may be wrong about that. Uh, okay. But, uh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Matthew 23, uh, call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. That's talking about calling someone our spiritual father. Uh, obviously, we can find scripture references to where people refer to their physical fathers. So it's not a prohibition on co- talking about my physical father, but I can't call another person my spiritual father, which... By the way, is another question for the Catholics who do identify individuals as their spiritual fathers. Okay. All right. Good discussion tonight. Kyle, thanks for helping us get it out there tonight. It was good to be here. People well, are reading their Bibles. we got some good questions. So uh, we need to... Yeah. Good Good discussion. Yeah. And, Dad, thank you for your time. Thanks, Jacob. Thank you for joining us. Hope you benefited from our study and discussion of God's Word. Hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life, study His inspired Word of the Bible, and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 9.30 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.